I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season three of Saturday School. We're coming at you live from the ground of the UC Irvine Library. Literally on the floor. <laughs> We're on the floor of the library. For those of you who are just joining us, season one was about Asian American comedy films. I repeat after me. In sickness and in health till death do us part. Till sickness and death. Season two was about Asian Americans in love. If he feels like that, what can I expect from you? Everything. Because I love you. And this season, we're going to be talking about Asian American music movies. Over the summer, we did a special session of Saturday School. We invited professor critic DJ Oliver Wang to talk about one of his favorite Asian American romances, and he picked Flower Drum Song. And we thought it actually raises a lot of interesting questions about Asian American popular culture regarding music. In an ideal world of Saturday School, this season would be called Asian American Musicals, because we both love musicals. We toyed with that. We're waiting for H.P. Mendoza to make seven more musicals, so we can do a season on Asian American Musicals. But until then... Until then, we realized... Well, you should say this because you realized. When we think about the genre of musicals, I think there's the obvious Hollywood genre of characters breaking into song when we break the illusion of reality and everyone knows the same dance steps and can sing the same songs and somehow there's background music that everyone can hear. There's that definition of the musical. But if you go to the musicals section of Netflix or a blockbuster... Those of you who are old enough to know what blockbuster is. Yeah. But when you go there, you'll find that you don't just get the Wizard of Oz's, but you also get concert movies and that the genre of the musical can be expanded to music movies more generally. Did we decide whether John M. Chu's Justin Bieber concert film was going to be in the season? <laughs> I think it's pretty important for us to acknowledge. He makes the step-up movies that has dance. And he directed the LXD on Hulu. Yeah. But definitely, like, when you think about Asian-American film musical auteurs, it's like H.P. Mendoza and John M. Chu. You know, Adam Savani and I challenged you guys to the biggest online dance battle in YouTube history. While you may have hoped that that would be the end of it. Oh, no, 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 no. This is just the beginning. We might even touch upon interesting music videos. Or just other kinds of films that may have been inspired by music in important ways. So that's where we're heading. Asian American music movies. For our first class, we're going to be talking about the 1975 documentary, Cruisin' J-Town which was directed by Dwayne Kubo, one of the original founders of VC. Visual Communications. The film is a documentary about the Asian-American jazz fusion band called Hiroshima. So saxophonist Dan Kuramoto, koto player Jun Okita Kuramoto, and percussionist Johnny Mori. So this film marks some of the opening moments of Asian-American cinema. Visual Communications, which is the presenter of the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival, they're based in Los Angeles, they started off as a collective of filmmakers that were students at 
UCLA's film school. Uh, this is in the 60s and 70s when UCLA realized that they need to diversify the students in their film school. They had this affirmative action program called Ethnocommunications that got in African-American, uh, Chicano, Native American, as well as Asian-American directors into their ranks. And the Asian-American ones went on to form this collective called Visual Communications. So this is Duane's thesis film, but other members included Robert Nakamura. And they went on to make some of the first films that were very self-consciously Asian-American movies. Before these films, there were Asian-American directors and performers and stories. But this is the first generation that kind of called themselves Asian-American and wanted to very explicitly explore what it means to be an Asian-American filmmaker and tell Asian-American stories. And interestingly... One of the first subjects that they decided to tackle were musicians. This was made way before Hiroshima became popular. They were formed in 1974. This film kind of documents their early moments in which they're still trying to figure out who they are as a band. So you mentioned that you first saw Hiroshima when you were a kid. Yeah, so when I saw them in the 1990s, growing up in Cerritos, California, um, they would tour and this was kind of at the height of world music as this fad, um, but also like new age music. And Hiroshima at that point kind of fit in nicely with very upstanding, like old, old white people music, like, you know, world jazz. But at the time, as depicted in Cruise and J-Town, they were just a bunch of cool kids thinking very politically about their music and not just in terms of a cultural preservation, which is, I think, how some people cherish them today, as if they're kind of authentic to something. Whereas I think they would talk about how you know, what they're doing is not very authentic. And throughout the film, they're asking questions of themselves. So every day I look, you know, it's Japanese, but then yet on the other hand, I'm Japanese-American. I can relate more to a, a black or a Chicano here in the United States than I can to a person from Japan. So that's why, you know, creating an Asian-American thing that I could feel comfortable with, you know, I think it's pretty important. So one of the coolest parts in the film is when June, the Koto player, talks about how when she was a kid, she was forced by her parents to learn the koto, which is this kind of Japanese string instrument. So she kept it a secret from her friends because she didn't want her friends to think she was weird or foreign or anything for playing the koto. So she was like, that kind of made it underground. There's something about her not being able to tell the secret to others that, that made this kind of music underground. And that kind of gave them an extra bit of this is something maybe like forbidden or potentially political, shared secret history that Japanese Americans or Asian Americans had that can unify them. In the beginning, it was just, I was invited to jam, you know, just bring down the koto and let's jam. And I was very uptight because I've never improvised before. And I was very inhibited. But then once we started working, then it, you know, just fit in. I don't know, I guess everyone was kind of excited because it was something different. And then it was definitely something Asian. As a concert film, this is great footage. It becomes this great record of what Asian American musicians sounded and looked like at the time. I love that guy with that kind of like super fly fedora, like this pimp wear. And then yeah, he's got totally. this like horseshoe <laughs> mustache and just rocking out on the, on the clarinet. You can see how the different instruments integrate. And this has sort of become a cliche in Asian American culture making, which is like we want it to be a mix of East and West. And you kind of see how it plays out and how like this is a beautiful moment where the Koto solo turns into his electric guitar solo. And it's like, this that makes sense. I totally get it. It's like a predecessor to Lee Home Wong later when he's trying to combine the Urhu with hip hop. 
Oh, the chinked out music. The chinked out music. I should say chinked out is Wang Lei Hong's term before anyone gets mad at me. <laughs> and also like Shanghai Restoration Project. <laughs> oh, I love Shanghai Restoration Project. And these are the pioneers of that. But also, like that's also a reminder that Hiroshima was probably unlike other kind of jazz funk groups actually in Japan at the time, who were probably very, very Westernized and didn't really want to hold on to Japanese-ness in such a quote-unquote important way that Hiroshima and other kind of Asian Americans kind of felt the pressure to have to be in the search of their identity. And as a result, this is kind of a rare thing to find. We both went to UCLA. I think I took an ethnomusicology class. So did I, yeah. actually. I think I just took it for like an easy A. Oh, I don't know what I got in. <laughs> I don't think there was any Asian American stuff in the class. Uh, I remember um, reading Deborah Wong's book on Asian American music. It's called Play It Louder. It's yeah. such a cool title because it's about volume and it's about getting your voice heard. And the way Hiroshima talks about their own music speaks to that, too. The band members talk about how their own cultural search is uh, aligned with the Asian American movement. And when we actually hear their music, it's loud, it's, it's a lot of instruments at once. And they're very explicit about how they wanted their music to be a reaction to what was happening with Asian Americans in the mainstream at that time. They wanted it to be the opposite of Mr. Moto and, and Charlie Chan which were kind of um, neutered sort of Asian-American figures. And the thing that's really gratifying is we play concerts and like Chicanos or whites, blacks come up to us afterwards and Native Americans, whoever, and they come up and they say, you know, I was really glad to see you because it really changed my perspective of who and what Asian-American people really are. You know, that, you know, I feel like I can relate to you now. And before it was a, a, just a bunch of stereotypes that were running through my mind and, you know, I could never get next to any Asian-American brothers and sisters. But now, it's different. Now that I see you and I see what you're trying to say, you know, I feel like this with you. And that's, uh, uh, that makes it all worthwhile. The last scene in the movie actually isn't their own concert, but it's a concert that they did together with the El Teatro Capasino, a Chicano performing arts company. The idea is that there's something kind of beautiful in the fusion of all this, too. And... That's very political at that time, and it still feels really political today to watching this. But what I love about this film and the documents of that era is that you get the sense that people felt like anything was still possible, that you can break down genres, that film could still be anything that you wanted it to be. And that's kind of where we'll be tracking from here on out for this semester. So from here, where does the cross-section between Asian American music and Asian American cinema go? So where can we find this film, Brian? Well, as we discovered, this film is available at the UC Irvine Library, which is where we're watching it right now. I had seen it previously at UCLA, so it should be at that library as well. University libraries, especially with Asian American studies connected to it, this is such a foundational work of Asian American culture making that I think a lot of these universities might have it. If not, tell them to go purchase it for the libraries. Otherwise, it's pretty hard to find, but it's worth seeking out. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. We have a Tiny Letter newsletter you can sign up for to get lecture notes. Tinyletter.com slash Saturday School Podcast. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Next week, your assignment is to watch Wave Twisters. 
the 2001 animated film based on DJ Qbert's album of the same name. Class dismissed.